Take your copy of the scripture still in hand there and turn, if you would, to Psalm 47. Psalm 47, as we continue in book two of the Psalter. Psalm 47, before we hear from the Lord, let's uh, ask his blessing upon the reading and hearing and receiving, preaching of that word. Let's pray together. Our great God, Lord, we come to you now and we are eager to hear your word. We come to sit at your feet and to be still and to listen. And we pray, dear Lord, help us to settle our souls and focus our hearts where they need to be focused on you, on the word as it goes out. Help us to receive from you that which is most important, that word, because therein you give us yourself, your grace, your blessing, your kingdom. It's for all these that we yearn and long for. And so, Lord, we pray that our eyes and our hearts, we might accept therein by faith all that we hear, and that it may change our lives and our hearts, that we would be transformed evermore into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. For it says his, his name that we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Psalm 47. Because give your full attention, this is the Word of God. The choir master is Psalm of the Sons of Korah. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, the great King over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet, Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but this word of our Lord Indeed, endures forever. May he add his blessing upon it as he preached at this time. <clears throat> Where the Psalms are <clears throat> precious to God's people, they're dear to us, dear to our hearts. Uh, the Psalms, of course, as we've seen and as you know, reflect the full anatomy, as been said, of the human soul. <clears throat> uh, sometimes we miss, though, the connectedness of the Psalms one to another. Oftentimes we read them in isolation. Uh, from the flow of the entire Psalter. Uh, But there is indeed amazing structure and flow to them. And we've seen this uh, structure as we've studied the Psalms in Book 1 a number of years ago, but now also in Book 2 of the Psalms. Um, Our Psalm today flows out of what proceeds, out of Psalm 46. Uh, Remember in that Psalm, that wonderful vision of the grand universal peace flowing from the Lord's victory over the nations, right? And from that universal peace of Psalm 46 flows praise in Psalm 47's vision of this universal worship by those very same nations. Psalm 46 described the chaos of the nations. Recall in Psalm 46, verse 2 and 3, the earth gives way, the mountains be moved into the sea, the waters roar and foam, the mountains tremble at its swelling. And remember how it progressed on in that psalm. 
All that chaos gives way to those same nations subdued in obedience to the Lord. And it ends, Psalm 46 does, with the call for the vanquished in verses 8 and 10, to come and behold the works of the Lord and then be still and know that I am God. And they are now called, what, in 47, to worship him, to worship him. Psalm 47 is structured the way that it's built is that there are two mirroring halves or parallel halves. There's verses 1 to 5 and then verses 6 to 9. And those two sections that mirror each other are a call to praise, a call to praise. Uh, One theologian says it is a call to celebrate the international church of the universal king, right? This globalist international church of the universal king. And that's a great way to frame and to describe what we have here in Psalm 47. And at its core, we see that because of God's faithfulness, we are to praise him. We are to praise him. It's a call to praise. <clears throat> Both sections begin with this call to praise in verses 1 and 6, these two stanzas. Uh, verse 1, clap your hands, all peoples, and shout to God with loud songs of joy. Right, And so we read the all peoples there, right? All peoples are called to praise. And we know that the underlying uh, God's work of redemptive history is the outworking of that covenant made long ago, the covenant of grace. Uh, is that first gospel we talked about in our study hour this morning uh, that's given in seed form, you recall, in Genesis 3, in that declaration of judgment on the serpent, right? The promise of one who would come and crush the seed of the serpent. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel, right? And so we have this promise of this head-crushing Savior in this first publishing of the covenant of grace there, even in Genesis 3. And it comes paradoxically again in words of judgment. Judgment. And so, so within the, the, the word and world of judgment, God speaks his grace. God's establishing this very principle very early on in the history of salvation. The principle that salvation in the Bible will come through judgment. Salvation comes through judgment. We see this all over the scriptures, Right? It's not foreign to us. We might call them redemptive judgments. <clears throat> we talked about this several Wednesday uh, studies ago in the evening, uh, and we've seen it rather often. <clears throat> Salvation comes through judgment, right? Salvation came to the family of Noah through judgment, right, as the world is submerged. Israel is delivered in the Exodus through judgment, right? Israelites on the shore and the Egyptians dead in the sea, And then Israel, another instance is uh, saved from the hand of the Philistine, Goliath, through the judgment that God brings um, through David upon the giant. We should not be surprised then. This is the pattern and way that we see through Scripture. When we come to the New Testament, that our salvation in all these types and shadows comes through judgment of the cross. And so Genesis 3.15 is his first announcement of that covenant of grace, the covenant that is more fully revealed and fleshed out in the Abrahamic covenant, you'll remember, right? And so uh, the Abrahamic covenant is the the particular and historical establishment of the one underlying covenant of grace that underlies redemptive history until the end. It is the promise, uh, rather it's promised and ratified in Genesis 12, 15, and 17 in this promise to Abraham. And remember what the promise was to Abraham. 
There are these three main things that were promised to him. And through him, right, there would be a multitude of his seed, his offspring, in the land, in the sand, right? And then the strangers, or as we talked about earlier, uh, he's promised a people, a place, and then pagans coming in, right? The seed of people is innumerable. The land and place is beyond measure, and the strangers, the outsiders, coming in, incorporated into the family of God. This is indeed what we see historically. God promised Abraham, and he fulfilled those promises, and he did so in two stages, right? The first stage of fulfillment we see in the Old Covenant, with the nation of Israel in the land of Canaan. Israel was promised offspring, and Canaan was the promised land. These promises, however, did not end uh, were not an end in, in themselves. God also promised to Abraham that through him, the blessing of the nations, he would bless the nations through him. And so the second and greater fulfillment, stage of fulfillment, is in the new covenant. <clears throat> God's promise of an offspring is fulfilled in believers and their children. And his promise of a land looks forward to the greater fulfillment of the new heavens and the new earth. And so all that opulence and all the majesty and all the, the wealth in the Solomonic kingdom, the pinnacle of the, of, of the type of film, film of that uh, was, was only temporary, a first-level fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham because it's within the coming of Christ a greater fulfillment has occurred, right? <clears throat> and so with this in mind, we go back to our psalm and we see these two halves, uh, the two stanzas of that psalm begin with a call to praise. And again, remember, Clap your hands and shout to God with loud songs, and it's a call to all peoples. Right? So this brings to mind that Abrahamic promise. In you all the nations will be blessed, all peoples uh, of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 12. <clears throat> and so this is expressed in a call to worship. And then verse 6, the beginning of the second stanza in Psalm 47, uh, is parallel, but notice it's amplified. Right? In verse 6, we have uh, a fourfold call. Right? Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. Right? And then notice there's something else that's different from six from one. We find this important difference. Uh, in verse one, you see it says, Who was the call to? To whom was the call? It was to all peoples, right? But verse six moves to a more personalized call. It says, Sing praises to our king. Our king, right? And there's something going on there between God's covenant people and the nations that were just attacking them. That an Israel, Israelite choir can call those same nations to worship our king, our king. Right? So the intros of these two stanzas, verses 1 and 6, give the call to praise. And why praise? Why praise? <clears throat> well, firstly, because of the position of God, right? God is king. God is king. In verses 2 and 8, we see this. Uh, 2, 7, and 8. In verses 2 and 7, are paralleled, and they begin with that word for, for, right? There's a call to praise, and it says for, what? For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, the great king over all the earth. And the God who is king, right, in verse 1 and 6, is identified as the Lord, Israel's God and Savior, and the Most High, the Most High, the only Savior and God. So because of who he is, he's to be feared. <clears throat> and it doesn't go without saying that uh, in children, you, you need to understand this uh, as well as us adults. There are two kinds of fear in Scripture, two kinds of fear that are talked, spoken of, right? There is the f being afraid of God, and there's 
being reverence towards God, right? You never want to experience being afraid of God. Right? That's a, a, a slavish fear, right? It's, it's, it's a fear of terror, a fear of an, an enemy. What we want is a filial fear, right? A, a son and daughter kind of fear. The reverence and awe that we have, for instance, towards our mom and our dad. But it's towards God because he is your father through Jesus, right? And so we know this from experience. <clears throat> Not everyone has a loving and caring earthly father. Some of you may have had a father who was mean or made you flinch every time he moved for fear of being hit or being yelled at. But if you belong to Christ, you have a heavenly father who you don't have to flinch at, who you don't have to be afraid of. You love and fear him out of awe and reverence. And so verse 7 opens up the same way as verse 2. It says, for, for God is king of all the earth, sing praises with a psalm. But then notice how verse 8 advances. It goes on. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. God reigns, it says. And in Scripture, this has a sense of action and movement. Uh, it's the sense that God has become king. He has become king. And that sounds weird to us because we know that God is already king. But in the Old Testament, kingship is not merely a status, right? We think of, uh, you know, for instance, the king of England or the queen of England, right? Not a lot going on there, right? It's, they're just kind of there. But in the Old Testament, there's not merely a status. God is king, uh, not just status, but in action. God acts as king when he works deliverance for his people. It's kind of like our Lord's Prayer, right? When we pray what? Thy kingdom come. Well, we know that the kingdom has already come. When Jesus came into the world and performed signs and miracles, the kingdom was uh, inaugurated. <clears throat> but what we mean when we pray that is that we ask him to show his rule and reign over the entire world until one day all things are fully and finally in subjection to him once and for all. And we see this, these two components, this already and not yet. You've probably heard me or others speak about this kind of tension. And we see this in the last book of the Bible, um, the 15th chapter of Revelation. Um, there's this scene of the church in heaven that's conquered the beast, singing the song of Moses and the Lamb. Revelation 15, verses 3 and 4. Right, listen closely. It says, And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. He's king already. But then verse 4, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, and the nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Right? His kingship there we see even in these two verses. Uh, verse 4 is not yet fully known, not culminated. And so that's the promise in the position of God. Right? We praise the Lord for he is king. And then we praise him next because we are the people of God. Right? We are his. We see in verses 3 and 4 and then the parallel in the beginning of verse 9. Uh, these verses tell us more fully about the people of the king. And again, back to remember the opening, uh, we talked about all peoples and our king. Verses three and four talk about those subdued, conquered people. Again, in verses three and four, he subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. 
Right? So this brings to mind places like Joshua uh, chapter 10, where it talks about the conquest under Joshua when his men put their feet on the necks of the Canaanite kings. Verse 4, he chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob whom he loves. Right? And that heritage is what? It's the promised land. But why? Why did he do so? We know as we read uh, further on in Deuteronomy, for instance, it's not because Israel was more righteous or greater in number than the Canaanites that he loved them, but because he loved them. He set his special love and favor upon those people. But there's still the question of why should those who are conquered and subdued by the king of Israel and all the world, why they should clap and shout and sing praise? Well, the first, first part of verse 9 says that those subdued are also incorporated into the people of God. And this is outstanding. This is really an awesome thing that we can't miss. Um, and indeed will magnify our, uh, our praise and worship of our God. Uh, the first part of verse 9 says, The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. Right? Some translations might say gather with the people of the God of Abraham instead of as. But the awesome thing is uh, that it doesn't say as or with in the Hebrew text at all. The way it's constructed, um, it's, you have the princes of the peoples are paralleled with the people of the God of Abraham, right? And so, like, grammatically, the way it's built is they are equals, right? They're equals. Uh, together, they are the people of God. And therefore, you can say, our king, sing praises to our king. Right? even those who were subdued and brought in. Right? And that's the covenant of grace and promise to Abraham coming to fulfillment. Right? This nondescript all peoples became the very personal our king that we saw in those opening verses of the stanzas. And that's just awesome, isn't it? It's amazing. And we praise God that he indeed has conquered even our own hearts. Right? He's conquered all of his and our enemies. And that includes us, our rebellious hearts. Uh, and incorporated us and brought us into the family of God, right? Outsiders and strangers brought into the family of God, equal to the sons and daughters of the king. That is truly amazing. And so we shout and clap because of the position of God, and because we're the people of God, and because he is praised, lastly, right? Because of the praise of God. He is exalted, right? We see in verse 5 and verse 9, the end of the two stanzas. These final verses round out this idea of the international church of the universal king. Verse 5, God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. The Bible speaks elsewhere of the Lord coming down to fight, down to fight, right? Isaiah talks about Lord coming down to fight on Mount Zion against King uh, Sennacherib. <clears throat> this is Isaiah thir I'm, uh, yeah, 31, I'm sorry. The Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion on its hill. Like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. Right? That's him coming down to fight. But he's depicted here in, verse, in Psalm 47 um, as a victorious king going back up, going up. Right? And the end of verse 9 tells us why he ascended back up. It says, for the shields... Right? The shields means the kings of the earth belong to God. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. And the thing that connects Psalm 47 and 46 
in the rest of Scripture is the realization of what we talked about earlier, that the celebration of Psalm 47 was for this temporal deliverance of the people here on earth. It was typological, all of it, pointing forward to something much, much greater and far more glorious. And we see this when we read the words of our Lord when he hung on the cross. And he said in John 12, 31, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And recall the declaration of the Spirit in Colossians chapter 2. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And that is rising from the grave. We read that death was swallowed up in victory. And when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and is seated at God's right hand in the heavenly places far above, right, we read Ephesians, all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And when he descends again on the last day, it will be, what does Scripture tell us? The last trumpet, the sound of the last trumpet of God. He is the universal king, brothers and sisters. He's building an international church. And so as we go back down from his mountain spiritually and in his presence, let us remember to give him praise. Praise for who he is, the reigning faithful king. And remember that we are his people, plucked out of the fire of his just wrath and given life, glorious, beautiful life and peace, even amidst all of our struggles, and let us praise him because Christ is and will be fully exalted in triumphant glory. And let us continue to pray for this church as a colony of heaven in this city, that we would be serious about praying for the lost around us, that we'd reach out to them as we live for Jesus and as we welcome them into our family, all those whom God calls to himself from our neighborhoods, all that Christ would be richly glorified and honored and praised. May we ever live for this, our Savior and our King. Rejoice and reflect on his promise and his power, dear Christian. Praise and glorify Christ our Lord with all of our lives, even into glory. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that it touches on uh, the big picture of reality, and even into our very personal lives. Lord, we pray that we would never lose sight of the reality that you are a conquering king, that you will, Lord, you will return to culminate uh, the kingdom that begun uh, when Christ first came, Lord. Give us faith to believe, Lord, give us, give us lives that will follow the reality that we are dead to sin and been raised to walk in newness of life. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.